0: Well, interesting. Be interesting. So. <laughs> All right. All right. Okay, as hopefully okay, everybody's everybody everybody are aware, just a little over, a little three, over three months ago, uh, uh, a number of us here uh, from the, uh, from the range front, front Range conservation here in Colorado over the in Israel, Israel uh, for the uh, Feast the of Tabernacles the, uh, at the, uh, the uh, uh, end of the season, on the eighth day. Uh, very, very a very horrible, horrible attack, attack. Uh, took place, uh, took place in to Israel. Israel. Uh, the Molieres uh, the were, were there, the Harleys the were, were, the were there, the the Kellers, and uh, Connie and I. And um, uh, during that horrifying attack, uh, some 1,200 people were murdered uh, by the terror group Hamas and its supporters there from Gaza. About 250 people were taken hostage, uh, of whom a number of them have have died. Uh, in the three months since that time. And this is not something that any of us who were there will uh, any, anytime soon forget there uh, because of the chaos. We didn't see any of it directly, although we did hear uh, hear the uh, uh, air raid sirens, uh, the warnings from the missiles being launched toward uh, Jerusalem where we were at the time there. And uh, some of the group people in our group saw the contrails from the rockets and heard the explosions, as, as I did, off in the distance there. And in the aftermath of, of that uh, horrifying attack there and Israel's predictable response uh, in invading Gaza, we've seen protests take place uh, around the world that are still ongoing uh, in support of Hamas and its terrorist attacks with, child, with crowds uh, chanting, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Uh, it's interesting, I saw a, a news report uh, written by someone who had interviewed a bunch of college students who were chanting from the river to the sea, uh, Palestine will be free. The, the journalist asked these college students, what, what river are you talking about? Three-quarters of them didn't know. <laughs> what sea are you talking about? Three-quarters of them, again, did not know. They didn't realize it was talking about from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, uh, which means, uh, frankly, the uh, genocide of the Israeli Jews and uh, the extermination of the state of Israel there. They're calling for ethnic cleansing uh, of that area, which is exactly what Hamas was trying to do. And the root of the problem in that part of the world is that uh, both the Jews and the Arabs claim the same land. So, who really owns the land there? Who has the, the valid uh, legal claim to the property? Uh, who has the moral and legal rights to the land? And since this is in the news so much uh, these days and is still uh, very much ongoing, I thought I'd take a look at this subject today and ask from a biblical perspective who owns the land? Who owns the land there? The the Arabs uh, have a grievance. They say that the Israelis came in and took the land from them. Uh, The Israelis claim that they were there first, or at least their ancestors were, long before uh, the Arabs laid claim to it. But someone had it long before either of those claims. So who legally has the land, uh, owns the land? And how do you go about establishing whose claim is is valid? And how do events that literally took place thousands of of years ago, because the story begins about 4,000 years ago, and how does that tie in with what is happening today? And how does it tie in with Bible prophecy of certain events that are to happen at the time of the end? So the title for today's sermon is Who Owns the Holy Land? And today in the sermon time we'll go through the origins of the struggle over this land and how that continues to affect the headlines that we see uh, on the news every day. Now how many of you have you have ever ever bought a piece of property? Uh show of hands here. And uh if you did you you probably were charged several hundred several thousand dollars in fees maybe for what is called a title search and title insurance now what's what's that about what does that have to do well in in buying a piece of property or selling a piece of property you have to establish that the seller actually has actually has title to that land that he or she is the uh, legal owner of of that land, and sometimes uh, those claims can go back uh, uh very very far back in history, for instance, here in in Colorado, a southern part of the state, was at one time owned by the king of Spain, and uh some of the earliest land grants in the southern part of the state uh literally go back to the sixteen hundreds and seventeen hundreds when the king of Spain, who was the legal owner of the property gave that land to whomever uh, he wanted. Uh, at that time the king of Spain owned that land and uh, did what he wanted with it. So, so legal ownership claims of property can go back uh, literally centuries to whomever the original owner was who either sold or gave that piece of land to. And the same thing is true of the Holy Land. The original uh, title uh, to the land was granted by the original owner, who, in this case, was God himself. And we find that story beginning back in Genesis 12. I'll be showing all the scriptures uh, here on, uh, on the TV screens here. So Genesis 12 and verse 1, and our story begins with uh, a man by the name of Abram, whom we uh, later know uh, to be renamed as Abraham. And this story starts uh, approximately 1900 B.C. or roughly 4,000 years ago. So let's uh, read about this. Now the Lord, the Eternal, had said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So we see a couple of important points here. We see that that God expected Abraham's descendants to be a blessing to the entire earth. And this is one prophecy that we understand to be dual, because uh, the most important of Abraham's seed or descendants was none other than Jesus Christ. Uh, through whom the entire earth has been blessed and will be blessed in an even greater way. But uh, it's also dual in the, in the aspect that the entire earth has also been blessed by Abraham's descendants, the, the Anglo-Saxon peoples through whom uh, the world has been blessed with so many great uh, technological, uh, scientific advancements, uh, and so on in over uh, recent centuries here. Uh, continuing, so Abram departed as the Eternal had spoken to him, and Lot, Abraham's nephew, went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So let's uh, take a look at that on a, on a map. Uh, incidentally, all these maps we'll be showing are from our Middle Eastern Bible prophecy booklet, so uh, you can, uh, if you want to refer back to these, uh, you can uh, later on. If you don't have a copy, I'll be glad to, to give this one uh, to you so uh, here 's what we're we 're talking about uh, let 's see i 'm not sure which screen to to look at here, but we see on here the the Mediterranean Sea off to the left of this of the screen. Uh, we see Israel just to the right of that, and uh, Lebanon to the north of it uh, Turkey to the upper part of the screen, Iran over to the right hand side Egypt and saudi arabia to uh, to the lower part of the screen. Notice also the dates in here because uh, Nearly all of these countries are uh less than a century old uh, because they gained independence from uh, uh from the British or the French who were uh, ruling over these territories uh that were before that part of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, the Ottoman Empire collapsed in the wake of World War One. The British and the French took over uh, those areas, and then subsequently they gained their independence. So that's why uh, most of these countries have been in, in existence for uh, less than uh, less than a century here. So that's that's what the modernity of the land is. Back in Abraham's day, uh, there were no borders like that. There were no nations uh, as we understand the concept today. What there were were what are called city states that would be where there'd be a fairly uh good sized city a good sized city in that time, maybe with five ten thousand people at best, and they control the territory around them uh to the extent that they could so uh, um so uh Abram's uh story begins up at you can see the the red lines there that's indicating Abram's journeys going south uh, through the Holy Land and eventually to Egypt and then returning from Egypt back to uh, the Holy Land there. So uh, I'll show some close-ups of this uh, a little bit later on so you can see that more clearly. So continuing with the story, uh, Genesis 12 and verse 5, "...then Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem as far as the terebinth tree of Morah. Uh, The Shechem that is mentioned here is right outside the present-day city of Nablus, uh, which you'll occasionally hear about in the news because it's a a hotbed of uh, Arab uh, uprisings and, and rebellion against uh, uh, the uh, Israeli uh, forces there. Uh, it is in the West Bank, West Bank referring to the west, western side of, of the Jordan River there. So Nablus, this particular area, is, is one of the regular hot spots that you'll see about if you follow the news. Uh, continuing here, it says, "...and the Canaanites were then in the land..." So Canaanites are already there when Abraham, Abram, starts uh, coming into the land. But were they owners of the land? No, they weren't. They were, uh, the term we would use today would be squatters. They had simply come in and occupied the land. They had apparently moved there after the dispersal of the nations from the Tower of Babel. Uh, they moved there from the Fertile Crescent and took it over the land. So they had no legal right to the land because the land belonged to God. Uh, they just simply moved in. Continuing at verse 7, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So we see who the owner is and who he promises it to. The owner is God. He promises the land to Abram and his descendants. And there, Abram built an altar to the eternal who had appeared to him. So, uh, again, we see the true owner of the land, God, giving the land to Abram and his descendants. And it's interesting, this is the first time we read, uh, we'll read, we'll see this repeated several times where, uh, Abram builds an altar, uh, to God in, in that spot. Why, why does he do that? Uh, the Bible doesn't tell us, uh, presumably, uh, this is in thanksgiving because you build an altar to offer sacrifices. So Abram is apparently uh, giving thanks to God there. But another possibility is, is this may be viewed as a way of establishing the legal claim to, to the land. Uh, you might think of it in modern day terms of, of putting out surveyor stakes or, uh, putting, uh, planting a flag maybe to, to claim the land. Or, or here in, uh, in, in the West and in Colorado, when a, when a miner would establish a claim, he would have to put something on the land, some type of marker to establish that he was the one who had the legal claim. Uh, to that uh, gold field or or whatever this this plot of land out on the prairie to homestead or something like that, that seems to be what is what is going on here we 're not told, but presumably that 's what 's happening. Verse eight, continuing the story, and Abram moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. there he built an altar, another altar built by Abram. Uh, to the Eternal, and called on the name of the Lord. So where is is Bethel? Here's uh, the map I showed earlier, a little bit closer view. Uh, you see a cluster of green dots uh, and, and names there. Uh, at the top is Shechem, and then below that is Bethel. These are the first two stops that uh, Abram makes. Jerusalem is right below Bethel. Bethel is... Uh, eight to ten miles north of Jerusalem, uh, so, something like that. So, so quite close. And um, again, all of these areas are in what is today called uh, the West Bank, the land that was captured uh, from Jordan uh, by Israel in the 1967 war. God later expands His promise to Abraham. In uh, Genesis 13, and we'll read about it beginning in verse 14, just a few verses down. And the Eternal said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lot goes down to settle near, near Sodom. Um, so uh, God says to Abram, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are. Northward, southward, eastward, and westward, for all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. So uh all the land that Brahm could see from this uh this area there, uh God promised that to him and his descendants forever. That's how long the claim goes, forever. From the time this agreement is entered into uh, the time of possession for Abraham and his descendants would be forever. Uh, verse sixteen And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, and your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk through the land, uh, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. So no one else has a claim to that land. The original owner, God, grants the land to Abram and his descendants. And he tells Abram to get up and walk through the land, north, south, east, west, um, to see the land that God was giving him. Verse 18, then Abram moved his tent and went and dwelt by the terebinth uh, trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron and built an altar there to the Lord. So uh, again, he builds uh, another, another altar. Hebron is the southernmost uh, green dot on the left side there. Uh, Hebron also is another place you see fairly regularly in the news because it's another spot where there's ongoing uh, conflict between the Israeli Jews living there uh, surrounded by uh, Arabs all, all around them. So uh Again, Abraham builds an altar. This is the third time we've seen that mentioned in these verses here. So um, in Genesis 15, let's skip down a little bit now, and we continue. And we see here the extent of the territory that God promises to Abraham. Genesis 15, verse 18. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So here's the land grant. Here are the boundaries of the land. What what does that look like? Uh, Well, let's look at our modern map again, the river of Egypt. Uh, You can see Egypt there, the uh, uh, pinkish orangish territory at the bottom left. And you see the blue line that is the Nile River, the river of Egypt referred to here. Uh, to the Euphrates River, and the Euphrates runs through Syria and Iraq. There's two blue lines. The upper one is the Tigris River. The lower one is the Euphrates. So what what Abram is, is promised here is from uh, the eastern bank of the Nile River, the Sinai Peninsula, the Arabian, Saudi Arabia, uh, all of the nations of the Middle East, as we understand them, up into modern-day Syria and Iraq. Uh, approximate in round numbers, roughly a 1,000 miles square, so roughly a million square miles in this land that God uh, promises uh, to Abraham. Uh, now we need to understand that while all this land is promised to Abraham, not all of it is promised to Israel. Uh, the land was given to Abraham and his descendants, but his descendants include more than just uh Israel as we know it. Uh Abraham left different parts of his property to different sons. So uh, now we come to the next generation of players after after Abraham. Uh, the first who 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 was the first claimant to property from Abraham. One well, might automatically think of his son Isaac, but it's actually Ishmael. Ishmael was the firstborn son of Abraham through Hagar. So let's uh, skip down now to Genesis 16 and see how this story develops and, and who is given what. Uh, fairly long story, so we'll, we'll hit some of the high points and skip over other parts. Now Sarai, uh, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, see now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid, perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. So uh, they've been promised uh, a son, a number of years have gone by and that hasn't happened, so uh, like most of us would do, we try to take matters into our own hands with disastrous results here. So they try to give surrogate motherhood a try. And uh, Sarah uh, decides that maybe they aren't doing enough on their own, that there's another way that God's going to work this out. So uh, she comes up with a solution that sounds outrageous to us today, but uh, we know from archaeological evidence, from clay tablets, from that area at that period of time, that this was something that was, uh, was done during that time, where if a woman could not bear children, if she had a handmaid, uh, the handmaid could have children by the husband, and those would be legally considered the sons or daughters of the wife. So, it sounds, again, sounds outrageous to us, and, and we see it was not a bright idea. Uh, but it was something that was done to have a child through, through a servant girl. So we're familiar with this story. I won't go into the, to the gory details. Obviously, things did not work out all that well. And it comes to the point where Hagar, because she is now, uh, pregnant by, uh, Abraham or Abram, and she comes to think that because she is now bearing the child, that she is more important than Sarah or Sarai is. So, uh, Sarah becomes jealous and treats Hagar badly. So there's some attitude back and forth between, uh, the two women there. And it ends up with Hagar fleeing into the desert. Now, it's easy to see, to, to assume that Sarah is the one who is in the wrong here, but, uh, that's not what is, what is pointed out here uh Sarah is apparently trying to put Hagar back in her rightful place because Hagar is the servant not the the head of the household there or the wife of of Abraham uh but Hagar was not content with that anymore now that she is is bearing the son by Abraham so when Sarah disciplines Hagar she simply runs away into the desert so pick up the story in verse 7 now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness by the spring on the way to shore. And the angel said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. So we see here the real problem. Sarai, uh, Sarai has... Uh, put Hagar in her place and Hagar is resisting that doesn't want to do that so she runs away so uh, the angel had to put Hagar in her proper place there verse 10 then the angel of the Lord said to her I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude so we see here that Hagar's son the son of her and Abraham was to become a great nation as well. And verse 11, And the angel of the eternal said to her, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, which means God will hear, because the Lord has heard your affliction. And now we come to a prophecy about Ishmael and his descendants. And This is very, very important. In light of what has happened for the last 4,000 years in that part of the world. So, verse 12 He shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. This last verse isn't translated all all that well. Uh, Several other versions translate it better, like the NIV here. Which says, he will be a wild donkey of a man. And that was a, you might think of the desert burrows uh, here in the American Southwest. Uh, his hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. And this is certainly an appropriate description of the descendants of Ishmael, who are the Arab peoples uh, of today. Uh, they have, throughout their history, have seldom been able to get along. Uh, basically, the only time uh, they cooperate or work together is when they're under uh, a real strongman ruler. You might think of somebody like Saddam Hussein, who ruled uh, Iraq with a with a uh, an iron fist, or uh, other individuals like that throughout history. Uh, or another time, they're, the only time they're getting along is when they're united against somebody else, like is happening today with the state of Israel moving to the next chapter in verse 20 we find out more about the descendants of Abraham through Ishmael and here God is talking to Abraham and he says what is going to happen with Ishmael's descendants verse 20 and as for Ishmael I have heard you Behold, I have blessed him, and will make him fruitful, and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall begat twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next year. So we see here that Ishmael's descendants are to become a a great nation, but not as great as the descendants through, through Isaac. Uh, who will be the recipient of God's covenant here. So Ishmael is then sent away from, uh, Abraham. And Ishmael's sons inherit what is today, uh, what we basically call Saudi Arabia. The, the Arabian Peninsula there. Uh, Ishmael had twelve sons, twelve princes, as it's called here. They would be the head of, of twelve, uh, Arab tribes. And uh, the Arabs today are their descendants. And, and it's interesting, if you travel to that part of the world, you talk to Arabs, uh, they're very proud. Uh, and, and they'll proudly tell you, we are, we are the sons of Ishmael. Uh, they know who they are. Um, and that is true uh, to this very day. And this prophecy of what would happen with Ishmael is also very true as well, that he would be uh, uh, a wild ass of a man a uh, wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility uh, toward all his brothers. So uh, that also has been fulfilled throughout history, that the the Arabs, uh, the sons of Ishmael, have a long history of fighting uh, and conflict, of not getting along with others. Uh, They also have a long history of conflict against the Western nations. Uh, It was Arabs, mostly from Saudi Arabia, who flew the jets into the Twin Towers uh, in the 9-11 attacks of the Pentagon, uh, and so on there. Uh, It was Arabs who moved into Afghanistan and uh, formed the Taliban. Their Taliban is an Arabic word that means students, students of Allah learning uh, Allah's way, and so on. They corrupted, took over the government, and basically turned it into a terrorist state. And now it has returned to that uh, to that kind of state there. Uh, the Arabs have uh, fought multiple wars against Israel and uh, lost all of them. And again, basically they're not united at any time unless it's under a real strong man or they're fighting against somebody else. So we see here the first claim of territory of what was promised to uh, Abraham, that uh, uh, his descendants through Ishmael have a legitimate claim to the, the Arabian Peninsula, uh, Saudi Arabia, the other, other nations uh, around there. Uh, but nothing else. Uh, if you want to follow on to that, study it a little more, you can find in Genesis 25 it lists the 12 sons of uh, of uh, Ishmael, and where they settled, which again is, is today's uh, Saudi Arabia. Now, what about the promise here that they would become a great nation? Uh, that promise was fulfilled historically uh, more than 13 centuries ago. Uh, let's take a look at a map, another one from the, uh, from the Middle East booklet here. What this map is showing is uh, there were two great waves of Muslim or Arab conquest. Uh, In the 600s A.D., I'm just using round numbers here, but in the 600s A.D., uh, Muhammad founded the religion of Islam and claimed to be its its great prophet. And I've given a number of sermons on that in the past if you want to learn more about uh, the history of Islam and its teachings and backgrounds, the Quran, and so on. But uh, the Arabs took that religion uh, from Saudi Arabia here and uh, in a wave that lasted roughly a century, spread that uh, throughout. And this is the area that's indicated in the orange color, the dark orange color here, uh, throughout the Middle East, took over the Holy Land, uh, the entirety of the Saudi Arabian Peninsula, uh, went eastward uh, to all the way to what is today India, and uh, went northward, taking part of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Uh, went uh, westward all the way across North Africa, took over Spain, and then it uh, essentially stalled out for uh, until the uh, 14 and 1500s. And then there was a second great wave of expansion uh, in Islam, and that's indicated in the lighter orange color here. Took over. Basically, the northern third to half of Africa, uh, spread way up into, uh, Eastern Europe, uh, Southern Russia, uh, much of India, spread along the east coast of, uh, of Africa, uh, down to Indonesia, the islands down to the, to the lower, uh, lower right there. And both times he had a, uh, what has been called, uh, the greatest or the most effective evangelistic technique in history, which is, you put a knife to somebody's throat and you say, accept Islam or die. And, uh, so these areas became permanently, uh, Muslim and they are to this day. And, uh, so this is basically the Muslim world today. They're not all Arabs. A lot of people tend to think all Arabs are Muslims and, and that's true about 99, 98, 99%. But not all Muslims are Arabs. Uh, many African tribes, even Indonesia, oddly enough, the islands at the uh, lower right, uh, is the most populous Muslim uh, nation in the world, with about 250 to 300 million Muslims just in Indonesia. Uh, Pakistan and India, India, oddly enough, has, I think, the second largest Muslim population in the world. Um, we we see here a map showing the arab league countries these are you might contrast to the previous map and uh the arab these are the country the nations that are arabs and they are overwhelmingly muslim as well and you can see tiny israel there uh the little yellow area uh in the, inside the circle there it's uh, far less than 1% of the lands that are controlled by the arabs or the muslims there it's interesting how the Arabs are constantly accusing Israel of taking over Muslim land. But <laughs> look at this on a map like this and it kind of puts that into perspective. Uh, these lands were forcefully taken over by Muslims centuries ago and uh, have never been relinquished. And they have eradicated uh, basically all other uh, religions from this, from this area. So uh, after this uh, first wave of Islamic expansion for several centuries, Europe was in what, it, what is commonly called the Dark Ages. Well, why is it called the Dark Ages? Well, the map helps explain it because on the southern side and on the uh, eastern side, uh, Europe was cut off from the rest of the world by hostile Muslim armies. And there was no trade. There was no no commerce between those areas. They, they were shut out. Europe was isolated. Uh, what you had to the north was the Scandinavian countries and a lot of ice and a lot of snow. And uh, to the west was the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, so two, on the two critical sides, the south and the east, Europe is isolated. And uh, thus, the Dark Ages—they were—they were cut off intellectually, culturally, trade-wise from the rest of the world. And during this time, um, Ishmael's sons did become a great nation. Uh, they ruled much of the world, as we can see from from the map here. They developed uh, a lot of the sciences, like astronomy, uh, geometry, algebra, mathematics, things, uh, things like that. You you won't find these things in in history books you won't find this being the cause of the dark ages in uh, in europe in the history books but uh this is actually what is what is going on here so the arabs at this time uh did become a very successful civilization and part of the reason for the arab hostility toward the western world today is uh frankly jealousy because the arabs remember their their great uh, greatness as a civilization, and how much of of the world they they controlled, and how advanced they were in these sciences uh, like astronomy and geometry and mathematics and so on. But their time in the sun came and went centuries ago, and since that time, the Western nations have uh, have uh, controlled the world. And they see that and they're envious of it because the Quran, their holy book, promises them that Islam is destined to conquer and rule the world. But they don't see that. They see the Western nations, the infidels, controlling the world. So that is totally contrary to their worldview. And that is a source of their ongoing hostility toward, uh, toward the West, uh, particularly toward the United States and Britain and Israel there. And um that is why uh people like Osama bin Laden, um Saddam Hussein, uh leaders of Iran, Ayatollah Khomeini and so on have for for decades uh labeled the United States as the great Satan, uh, Satan meaning the, the enemy, enemy of Islam, and Britain and Israel as the little Satans, because if they can overthrow the United States and Britain and Israel, then they can uh, attain their rightful place of, of ruling the world. So this jealousy and envy actually goes back, uh, all the way back to the jealousy and enmity between Ishmael and Isaac and between Jacob and Esau, as, as we'll see, see shortly here. Uh, what about other relatives of, of Abraham? Do they have a claim on the land? We won't turn there for lack of time, but Genesis 19 tells us the origin of two other peoples in this part of the world, and uh, this ties in with Sodom and the destruction of Sodom. Because uh, when that happens, uh, Lot and his two daughters uh, flee, hide out in caves. Uh, from their perspective, they think maybe the world is ended because their their home, the whole Jordan Valley, is utter is just a a smoking heap of ash at that time, and uh, Lot's two daughters understandably think the world is ended. and if the human race is to continue, the only man they have around is their father Lot. So they get him drunk, sleep with him, and um, become pregnant. and that is the origin of of uh, uh, two sons, uh, one named Moab, uh, originator of the Moabites and Ben-Ammi, uh, who is the originator of the Ammonites here. So these two peoples, uh, we see um, uh, two kingdoms that are fighting the Israelite and Judite kings uh, during their history are Moab and Ammon. Uh, Ammon is shown in orange on the right side of the map, and Moab is in purple just below that. So these are the Moabites and the Ammonites, descendants of, of Lot. Uh, This is their their origin here. Below them, in uh, the yellowish color, uh, you see something called the kingdom of Edom. And this is another uh, people who originate uh, around this time. Edom is another name for Esau. And we'll get into that in in just a few minutes here. Esau is Abraham's grandson. And uh, he also is a rightful heir, along with his fraternal twin brother, Jacob or, or Israel. So, uh, to kind of catch us up here so far, we have looked at, uh, what the two sons of Abraham, uh, Ishmael and Isaac were, were given. Ishmael is given a huge swath of land, uh, the Saudi Arabian Peninsula, which is basically sand and rock and about a third of the world's supply of oil. So, uh, Isaac is given everything else that we talked about from the river Euphrates to uh, uh, to the uh, Nile River so now we come down to, to the next generation we've gone through Abraham and Isaac and now we come to uh, Jacob and Esau in Genesis 25 and verse 20 so what did the two of them inherit and, and who gets what's left so picking up the story Genesis 25 verse 20 Isaac was forty years old when he took Rebekah, his wife, the daughter of Bethuel the Syrian of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban the Syrian. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah his wife conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So God determines that the two twins that Rebekah is bearing, that the younger would be greater than the older. And this is backwards from what is normally done, because normally the first one born um, if it's a firstborn, as in this case, would inherit the birthright and the promises, uh, and so on. And the blessing. So, so God determines before they're born that this would be reversed. So verse 24, so when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over. So they called his name Esau, which means hairy. H-A-I-R-Y, not H-A-R-R-Y. Afterward, his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob, which means uh, grasper or, or supplanter. And Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So the boys grew, and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebecca loved Jacob. So between these two twin boys, um, Isaac loves Esau, the outdoor guy, uh, the most, and Rebekah loves Jacob, the one who prefers staying in the tents there. So uh, like uh like you see among brothers at times, they're they very different from each other. Verse twenty nine Now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore his name was called Edom. So we see Edom and Esau are the same, same person. Uh, Edom means red after the red stew. So that's where he gets his name, after a bowl of, of stew. And the land of Edom, uh, which you'll see referred to in the Bible, is named for him. Uh, a variation of that you'll you'll find if you read history books is is Idomia. You can see Edom, Idomia. Uh, during the Greek and Roman times, uh, his land was called Idomia. The people were called Idomians. Uh, why is this significant? Uh, well, the biblical king Herod the Great, who built the Jerusalem Temple, was in, was half Idomian. He's an Edomite. Uh, by birth from this this area, uh, from the Itameans. Um, he also built Masada and Caesarea Maritima and other other great uh, places there. Uh, these people are the ones who also built Petra, whom you've all probably heard of, and uh, we visited here on the most recent feast trip here. So this is the origin. This is the land of the Itameans, the descendants of Esau or Edom. So, continuing the story back here in Genesis 25, verse 31, uh, here we see where Esau sells his birthright uh, to his brother. But Jacob said, Sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, Look, I am about to die, so what is this birthright to me? Then Jacob said, Swear to me as of this day. So Esau swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. So here we see in the biblical record how Esau sells his birthright, his blessings, his rights as the firstborn to his younger twin brother, Jacob, here, for a bowl of stew. So it was an agreement that is legal. It was agreed to by both parties, uh, the bowl of stew for the birthright. And uh, Jacob thus becomes the legal owner of the birthright. From Abraham to Isaac and now to Jacob. Uh, verse 34 And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank, arose, and went his way. And then we see God's judgment on this, uh, which is that thus Esau despised his birthright, treated it as something that was utterly unimportant, and exchanged it for a bowl of stew. Well, now skip forward to Genesis 27 and see more of of what this entails. Genesis 27, verse 1. Now it came to pass when Isaac was old and his eyes were so dim that he could not see that he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered him, Here I am. Then he said, Behold now, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now, therefore, please take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field, and hunt game for me, and make me some make me savory bread, food such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat, and the, and that my soul may bless you before I die. So now um, he's apparently unaware that the birthright has already been sold some time before, in the agreement we just read about for the bowl of stew. So um uh we'll skip over now the part of the story where Rebecca overhears this and conspires with uh with her, her son uh Jacob and uh and uh Rebecca has uh has uh Jacob put on Esau's clothes and even wraps the goat skins around his arms so he feels hairy like his, his brother and so on. And then we'll pick up the story down in verse seventeen. Then Rebekah gave the savory food and the bread, which he had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So Jacob went to his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done just as you told me. Please arise, sit, and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? And he said, "'Because the Lord your God brought it to me.' Then Isaac said to Jacob, "'Please come near that I may feel you, my son, whether you really are my son Esau or not.' So Jacob went near to Isaac his father, and he felt him and said, "'The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau.' And he did not recognize him, because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands.' Because of the animal skins wrapped around him. So he blessed him. Then he said, Are you really my son Esau? And he said, I am. And he said, "Uh, Bring it near to me, and I will eat of my son's game so that my soul may bless you. So he brought it near to him, and he ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near now and kiss me, my son. So we see through this that, that Isaac is, is clearly suspicious because he's, he, he doesn't think the voice is quite right. He feels his arms and hands, and, and they're hairy, but he doesn't realize it's goat skin that he's feeling. And he even smells him and, uh, to, to determine whether he smells like his son Esau or not. So he wants to be sure who it is he's giving his blessing to. Uh, verse 27 and uh, he came near and kissed him, and Isaac smelled the smell of his clothing and blessed him and said, Surely the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. So, so now he is persuaded, Yes, this smells like my son Esau. So uh, what follows is the blessing that goes along with the birthright, the birthright that would have gone to Esau, except he sold it to his brother Jacob uh, years before it and despised it when he was younger. So now we read about the blessings that are going to be passed on to to Isaac, or excuse me, to Jacob. Therefore may God give you of the dew of heaven, of the fatness of the earth, and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you, and nations bow down to you. Be master over your brethren, and let your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be those who bless you. So we see here that Jacob is basically getting everything. Um, now, whatever was left uh, from the previous distribution of property is now being given to Jacob. And along with it, not just the land, but these other wonderful blessings of agricultural uh, abundance and, and power and wealth and influence over the other nations and so on. But no sooner does this finish happening than who shows up on the scene but Esau, uh, the other brother. So um, continuing, verse 30. Now it happened as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob and Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac his father that Esau his brother came in from his hunting. He also had made savory food and brought it to his father and said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that your soul may bless me. And his father Isaac said to him, Who are you? So he said, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. And then Isaac trembled exceedingly and said, Who? Where is the one who hunted game and brought it to me? I ate all of it before you came, and I have blessed him. And indeed he shall be blessed. When Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came with deceit and has taken away your blessing. And Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob, the, the grasper, the supplanter? For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and now, look, he has taken away my blessing. And he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? And here we might rightly feel sorry for for Esau, but he has no one to blame but himself. Because, as we read earlier, God's evaluation of this is, is that he despised his birthright, considered it nothing, and sold it for a bowl of stew. He simply did not deserve it any longer. Verse 37, Then Isaac answered and said to Esau, Indeed, I have made him your master and all his brethren. I have given to him as servants with grain and wine. I have sustained him. What shall I do now for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, Have you only one blessing, my father? Bless me, me also, my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. I'm going to switch now to the to the New International Version because the, it's a better uh, translation here than the New King James. His father Isaac answered him, Your, and this is a prophecy here of what would happen with Esau and his descendants. Your dwelling will be away from the earth's richness in comparison to his brother Jacob. Away from the dew of heaven above. You will live by the sword and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you will throw his yoke from off your neck. And Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given to him. And he said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. And the story goes on from there. We won't read the rest of it. You're familiar with the the outlines of the story. Uh, Needless to say, Esau doesn't kill his brother because his brother is the one through whom the promises given to Abraham are to be passed down. And uh, Jacob would go on and have his 12 sons who would be the originators of of the 12 tribes of Israel. But we do see here the continuing line of possession and promises of the property uh, there in the Middle East. And we also see again the origins of a lot of the bitterness and the jealousy and the envy and the hatred that literally goes back for almost 4,000 years in this part of the world between the descendants of Abraham on both sides uh, through Israel and through Esau and uh, and the others there. So uh, Jacob would, as we see here, uh, have the legal right to everything that was promised to Abraham from the uh, from the Nile River in Egypt all the way to the Euphrates. It wasn't granted earlier to Ishmael, there the lands of, of Saudi Arabia. So let's take another, another quick look uh, at our map that we looked at earlier here showing uh, Abraham's travels. And what I want to point out here is where the descendants of Esau settled, the son who sold his birthright. Uh, basically, if you look at the bottom... If you see the the blue dot at the uh, uh, where where Hebron Mamre, where, where the black type is, that that's the Dead Sea. Uh, if you go south from that, uh, that would be the land of Idumea or Edom, where Petra is is uh, located there. And they were surely away from the dew and the fatness of of the earth there. Uh, they lived down below the Dead Sea. Uh, in what area that is now Jordan and, and Saudi Arabia, and here's here's what it looks like. Uh, we were able to visit there uh, at the feast again uh, this year. This area is called Wadi Rum, um, and uh, it's pretty barren, pretty desolate uh, there. There aren't even a lot of camels around, but the camel kind of shows uh, uh, the scale there. Very, very desolate area there. And uh, incidentally, if you've ever watched the movie Lawrence of Arabia, that's where this was filmed, uh, right in this particular area here. So this gives you a, a good feel for the area to which the descendants of, of Esau would live. And then uh, Jacob's 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel, and this shows uh, the lands that they would uh, inherit there. Uh, when they re-entered the land after their uh, enslavement there in, in Egypt. So the land is deeded to Jacob, and then it's subdivided among his 12 sons. Uh, so each of these tribes does have a very clear legal claim recorded in the Bible, uh, going all the way back to when God promised that land to, to Abraham. So now, what does all this lead up to, and what are the implications of this today? Well, from a prophetic point of view, we need to ask an important question, and that is, are these same people that we've talked about, Edom, Moab, Ammon, uh, Ishmael, still in the same areas that uh, they were given that we talked about there? Uh, It's impossible to say with absolute certainty in every case because... Uh, of all that has happened over the last 4,000 years in that area, there were Egyptian invasions from the south, there were Babylonian and Assyrian invasions from the north, there was intermarriage, there were migrations, there were wars between the different people. But, uh, in general, as uh, as I mentioned, if you go and talk to the people, the Arabs again say, we're the sons of Ishmael. and, And they are. If you go to Jordan and talk with the Jordanians, they'll proudly proclaim they are descendants of Moab and Ammon. What's the capital city of Jordan? Ammon. The name for the Ammonites. Uh, going back there to the son of uh, one of the daughters of, of Lot there. So, so we'd have to conclude that, that in general the peoples are very much in, in the same areas uh, that they were and form much of the non-Israelite population in that part of the world. Now let's turn over to Daniel 11 and read a very familiar prophecy about events in the Middle East uh, at the time of the end, in light of this history that we've talked about here today. Daniel 11, verse 40, At the time of the end, so this is the time marker, very clear time marker. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, the king of the north, and the King of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots horsemen and with many ships, and he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. so who's the king of the north and the king of the South? That goes back to as recorded earlier in uh, in this chapter, you find these two people who who change over time. it's more relative to who's ruling over the territories to the north of Israel and to the south of, of Israel, or specifically Jerusalem. So uh, that changed over time. Uh, uh, eventually, the Roman Empire absorbed all the areas to the north of Israel, so that's why we think the king of the north in the end time uh, is going to be associated with a, a latter-day revival of the Roman Empire centered in Europe. What about the king of the south? Well, the kingdom to the south of of Israel, as you've seen on the maps, uh, what do you have? You have Saudi Arabia and and Egypt. You have the heart of the Muslim world. So we believe the king of the south to be a leader who will emerge out of the Islamic world, the Muslim world. Um, And this will be part of a geopolitical war uh, unlike anything the world has ever seen at the time of the end. So, continuing, uh, verse 41, he, the king of the north, shall enter the glorious land, another term for the holy land, or Israel, and many nations shall be overthrown, but these shall escape from his hand. So, the king of the north invades the holy land, but Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon are not affected by this, or not invaded by this. So, Obviously, who are the Edomites, the Moabites, the Ammonites? It's Jordan, modern-day Jordan. So the king of the north invades the glorious land, the holy land, but not Jordan. As we read here, he shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. So he also moves down into the land of Egypt. This is one reason also why we think this has got to be some sort of Muslim confederation because he invades in the heart of the lands of, of Islam. So as we come to the time of Jesus Christ's return, in Daniel's prophecy, this area is the focus of end time events. And we see these same people, Edom, Moab, Ammon, Egypt, uh, they're in the same region. And, and again, they know who they are. Um, they know... Uh, who they're descended from. Um, And the Arabs are more than happy to to tell you that. Uh, Let's look at another prophecy not so familiar. This one is in Psalm 83. And and a number of the Psalms are prophetic uh, in in various ways. This is one of the more unusual because I can't think of another Psalm that's quite like that. But it seems to be describing something that has never happened in history before, there's no record of anything like this in history happening, so it must, therefore, be referring to the end time again. And this describes an end time conspiracy by uh, a group of different peoples, uh, ethnic groups, cultures, nations, who set themselves against God's people in the end time. So we'll read through its fairly short psalm. Do not keep silent, O God, do not hold your peace, and do not be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make a tumult, and those who hate you have lifted up your head. They have taken crafty counsel against your people and consulted together against your sheltered ones. They have said, Come, and let us cut them off from being a nation, that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. So we see these people are allied against the people of Israel. They want to commit genocide, that the name of Israel be erased from history and exists no more. But who are they really aligned against? They're really aligned against God, we see from the verses before that. Continuing in verse 5, for they have consulted together with one consent. They form a confederacy against you. They're actually aligned against God. So who is involved in this conspiracy against the physical people of Israel and against God himself? Then we see them listed. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites. We've talked about them. Moab and the Hagrites. Gebal, Ammon, and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre, Assyria also is joined with them, they have helped the children of Lot. Selah. And that's the end of the psalm. Not a lot of detail, but what does this mean in light of the peoples that we've talked about so far in this sermon today? So let's look at this on on a modern map here. And uh, just imagine the the yellow circle there in which Israel is enclosed, just imagine that as a clock face, so you may be sitting too far away to to see the uh, names of these different people. So let's go through them in order and see where they are on this modern day map. So Edom, as we saw earlier, is another name for Esau. We see Edom there at about, again, if the yellow circle is a clock face at about seven o'clock, you see uh, the word Edom there. So these are people who uh, settled to the south of of, uh, of Israel there. Some of these are spread out a little bit just to make them more clear. So they would be 6, 7 o'clock position on this map. Uh, as far as we can tell, these are uh, a large portion of the Edomites or what we would call today the Palestinians. Uh, Palestinians uh, Historically inaccurate name, I could discuss that at at length, but I won't for for lack of time here. Uh, The Ishmaelites, you see that down at about the 5 o'clock position in Saudi Arabia. We talked about that, how the 12 sons of Ishmael settled in what is today Saudi Arabia. Uh, Moab, uh, you see that at about the 3 o'clock position on the clock face. Uh, This is the area and inhabitants of central Jordan. Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan today. Uh, the Hagrites are mentioned only a few times in the Bible, but they are a people who lived and you see them up above the Ishmaelites at about the 4 o'clock position and up at about the 1 o'clock position there. Um, they uh, apparently lived in the northern part of Saudi Arabia and then spread from there uh, with the spread of Islam up into Syria, what is today modern day Syria. Uh, Gable has has two possibilities, referring to either the area of the Lebanese coast. We see that at the twelve o'clock position just above the top of the circle um, or a mountainous region of of southern Jordan, so down around the five or six o'clock position there. And then we see Ammon mentioned and that is about the two o'clock position here, uh, what is today northern Jordan. Uh, Amalek is mentioned north. Uh, next, uh, it is a branch of Edom, uh, again, descended from one of uh, Esau's grandsons, who was named Amalek. We see them. I've put them just below the arrow there at about the three o'clock position there, although they would have been uh, spread over a, a broader area there. Um, The Amalekites are apparently also a predominant part of what are are today called, uh, erroneously, the Palestinians. Uh, God, in the biblical record, utterly despised the Amalekites and told the Israelites to wipe them out. Why did he do that? Because, frankly, they were the terrorists of their day. If you read the account of the Israelites sojourn from Egypt, they, they leave Egypt, they start traveling up, uh, circling around to go through the promised land, and, and what do the Amalekites do? The Amalekites attack the, the, the end, the tail end of the Israelite column as it's traveling. Who is in the tail end? Uh, the weakest of the Israelite people, the, the elderly, the sick, the infirm, uh, the children. So the Amalekites are the terrorists who are killing, preying on the weakest of the Israelites. And that is why God tells him very clearly, wipe them out. He told King Saul that explicitly. And won't go into that story, but Saul disobeys God and God removes him as king uh, for his refusal to do what what God had commanded. Uh, Continuing back in, in Psalm 23... Uh, and, and I yeah let me let me finish a thought there uh, yeah there's certainly parallels between the Amalekites of that day and the Arab terrorist groups of today, and this is why I think there's a connection between the two and uh why do I say that? well again, just look at what Hamas did in, uh butchering twelve hundred people there at the end of the feast this year and taking another two hundred and fifty captive and Apparently murdering a number of them and just horrible atrocities uh, against the people they killed and the captives as well. So uh, let's uh, going back to where we were here in Psalm 23 and the identification. uh, After verse 7, after the mention of the Amalekites, uh, it mentions Philistia. Where where is Philistia? Uh, Philistia is at the three o'clock position on the map is today what we call Gaza which is where the war is taking place as we speak, where Hamas took over that 18 years ago after the Israelis withdrew, took it over, given complete autonomy. They vote Hamas into power, and it's been a terrorist state ever since. And uh, a lot I could say about that, but I don't have time for. So it's Gaza, or or the Gaza Strip is Philistia. Uh, Tyre is also mentioned. That is uh, up at the top of the map. Uh, above the 12 o'clock position it's uh, a city and waters today Lebanon uh, Lebanon today is ruled by its own terror group uh, known as Hezbollah uh, Arabic for party of Allah party of God, party of Allah uh, there and then uh, it also mentions they have helped the children of Lot we've talked about Lot a lot today uh, Moab and Ammon uh, there uh, now what's interesting is you look at this map here, uh, what you see is the state of Israel surrounded by people who are dedicated to the genocide of the nation of Israel today. Um, and what do we see in the world today? This exact situation here. Is Israel getting support from any of its neighbors? No, they're not. It's interesting, I I read of an interview, one of the leaders of Hamas uh, was interviewed by Russian TV the day after the October 7th attacks, and he boasted that uh, Hamas had called Egypt, Jordan, Turkey, and Russia an hour before the attacks and told them what is coming. On paper, Israel is allied with Egypt and Jordan and to some extent Turkey and Russia. Did they bother to warn Israel what was coming? No. They sat back and let 1,200 Israelis be murdered, 250 more taken into captivity. So there's very much parallels what we're seeing. Oh, I forgot to mention one area. Yeah, Assyria. Sorry, I overlooked that. Assyria, we see the green label at the upper right uh, there. Assyria may be referring to two two possibilities here. One, it may be referring to the ancient inhabitants of Assyria, whom we understood to have migrated over to Central Europe and are a lot of the Germanic people of, of today. Or it may be referring to the territory of ancient Assyria, uh, which is largely modern-day Iraq. It wasn't that long ago that Iraq was ruled by the ISIS terrorist group, the Islamic State in Syria and Iraq. Um, And uh, dedicated, of course, to the eradication of Israel as well. So, So two different possibilities there to consider, or maybe it's both. So we do have to be cautious uh, and careful in how we interpret Bible prophecy, but if we don't pay any attention to history and the biblical record, we don't have any hope of identifying who the players are uh, in the end time when it comes to prophecy. The Bible says that particular things are going to happen, and by studying the historical background as we've covered today, we can better understand who the players are. Who is involved, and in actually going back four thousand years as to what their motives are—the hatred and the jealousy and the envy that takes place there. So that's a reason by the, behind this whole exercise of establishing who uh, the land uh, who has valid claim to the ownership of the land currently occupied by the state of Israel and the other peoples who are nearby, because the ownership of the land is crucial to the events that are playing out before our eyes right now in the Middle East. And as we also see from these two prophecies in Psalm 83 and Daniel 11, it's also a key to understanding how those things might play out in the end. And we do all need to be closely paying attention to these because they are a key to understanding uh, in time prophecy as it is fulfilled. And we'll have a Q&A afterwards, so... That is the end of our sermon for today.